millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This fusion between what political party says, mm. what the media says, and what the Supreme Court judgment says, mm. this is almost identical. There was a circulation of a video showing two Christian women in Manipur. They speak one language, right. and that language is of an ethnic Hindu nationalism. Just lay out why the Mughal Empire is so problematic to these Hindutva people. Elements of Gandhi's thought is uh, so violent, uh, especially when it comes to Muslim issues. India's 200 million Muslims are at the mercy of an ultra-nationalist government that looks to create an exclusively Hindu Bharat or homeland. Since the rise of the BJP government, led by Narendra Modi, Muslims have been subject to discrimination, alienation, daily religious abuse, economic marginalization, state-sanctioned mob violence and pogroms like that in Gujarat in 2002. The Hindu nationalism is underpinned by a pernicious cultural and political ideology, Hindutva, framed by an antagonism towards Islam and a rewriting of Indian history. My guest today, Professor Irfan Ahmed, will help us understand the precarious state of India's Muslims and the Hindutva ideology. Born in India, he now lives in Istanbul, where he is a professor of sociology and anthropology at Ibn Haldun University. Prior to Istanbul, he was a research professor in Germany at the Max Planck Institute, and he has taught anthropology and politics in Netherlands and Australia. He has written numerous books and articles on India and Islam, and recently published a provocative piece on Hindu Orientalism, which I'm sure we're going to explore today. Professor Irfan Ahmed, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and it's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm also very happy to be here, and I have watched some of your programs, and I think intervention like yours is very important for our time. Well, it's, uh, it's really a pleasure to, to have you with us. And actually, uh, we're speaking in a week which has been marked by some very disturbing scenes in India. And I'm sure we're going to 
pick up on that as we as we go along today. So let's begin with the reality on the ground. Can you please paint a picture of the life of ordinary Muslims in India today? In one sentence, I think Muslims, and it is not just ordinary Muslims, both ordinary and non-ordinary, their condition today in India is marked by a state of complete terror. You mentioned um, this situation in last week. Mm. Muslims have been uh, killed in the train, and the guy, the um, police mm. officer who killed. Mm. So, of course, now he is being depicted in the media as somebody who is mentally stable, right. un unstable. Yes. But of course, there was a method in the way he killed these Muslims because it was not like a random shooting. Yeah. He was moving from one coach to another yeah. and identifying Muslim with uh, the visible marker like beard. Mm. Okay. So these three Muslims have been killed in two separate uh, uh, coaches. Really? Yes. So the point is, these. Uh, so this is one incident. Another incident which has happened in Gurgaon, which, by the way, is very close to uh, the capital. Right. So if we were to look uh, at this map here that you've asked me to put up, Gurgaon, it would be would be where? So you see, it is on the top mm. uh, in north. Right, here. So it is Delhi. Yeah. Um, technically, Gurgaon is part of Haryana. Right. But it is very close to Delhi. So if you were to drive by car, it will be like 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. And why is that so significant? Why, why is being close to Delhi very significant? Because, of course, it is the capital of India. Yes. Where you have parliament, you have a prime minister who lives there. Right. Um, so, so this is happening right under the nose of... Uh, of people mm. uh, who rule India. Yes. Uh, now, in Gurgaon, um, there was a masjid, and it is not a full-fledged masjid, it was a makeshift uh, masjid. Yes. And a very young imam, his name is Hafiz uh, Saad. Mm. So the mob went, first attacked the masjid, and there, I think, there were four or five people uh, who were attacked. Um, this young imam... Uh, he was killed. He died in the hospital. Mm -hmm. This young imam is uh, from the same estate where I come from. Really? Uh, in fact, from the same district as well, yeah. uh, Mari. Uh -huh. So you see this, uh, and and in in Gurgaon in the past, uh, there has been. So this is not the first attack mm. uh, on masjid, for example. Mm. It has happened before, uh, because uh, you know this is also. Uh, Gurgaon is important as part of this new India, like new offices, right. uh, towers, um, IT offices, and so on. Mm. So you have uh, Muslims who work there, but their number is very um, low. Yes. So they come for Friday prayer. Mm. Okay. So in some cases, they have been doing it in the open. Uh, in that kind of prayer also, they have been attacked. Really? Uh, there have been uh, several uh, reports. Yeah. So this has happened not one time, but many times. Yeah. So the point here is that this state of terror, which Muslims have been subjected to, mm. um, and especially it has increased um, since 2014, Yes, uh, when Modi came to power. Yeah. So what I want to say that this state of terror is, as 
state in the sense of condition. So the condition of Muslims, uh, it is marked by like social disposition. It is marked by discrimination. It is marked by their worsening economic status. Yeah. Uh, their low representation in government jobs. Uh, there are very few Muslims who find a way to go to the university, to the higher education. Right. So this is uh, what I mean, a state as a condition. But then this condition of Muslims uh, is definitely connected to the state as regime of power. Yeah. Now, let me illustrate this, what I mean by this. So these kind of attacks, mm. which I described here, when it happens, either the state is silent and sometimes it also indirectly encourages. Right. Encourages not by, not by acting against the criminals. Yes. Okay? So in the case of lynching, not only that the government doesn't take action, you have a case from Jharkhand, which is in the north, right. close to Bihar. Right. Uh, earlier, it was part of Bihar. Just over here, yes. Yeah. Uh, now, um, 20 years ago, it was uh, created as a separate state. Yes. So there, Muslims were lynched, and those who lynched Muslims, you have a politician mm. who not only spoke in favor of these Hindu lynchers, if uh, that is a word, uh, like lyncher, mm. but when he went and actually gave bouquet to those who had lynched Muslims. So flowers to those who lynched the Muslims. Yes. Wow. Uh, and, and this was a politician, the local politician in the area? Yes. Oh. And, and that politician is not an insignificant one. Yeah. He's, he's quite a significant politician who has fought uh, national elections. Really? You know? Yeah. So in that sense, you see um, the, the, the state of terror that I'm speaking about. A state as a general condition and also a state in terms of uh, the political regime or the yeah. power, yeah. they are um, connected. Now, this raises an important question that mm. can we talk about uh, democracy and terror? Because clearly, India projects itself. And in a way, it is because every five years, there is an election. Mm. So this raises the question that is there a connection between democracy and terror? Yeah. Now, of course, most theorists would uh, say that actually terror is opposite of democracy. Yeah. But I think historically, terror and democracy have coexisted. Right. Now, you remember the famous or the infamous statement that Roosevelt made. Uh, and it is something like this that the extermination of Indians mm. was ultimately beneficial as it was inevitable. <laughs> if you look at the history of democracy in Australia, yes. the extermination of uh, uh, Aboriginal population, mm. it is bound up with dem democracy. Right. It is bound up with with. Uh, with uh, uh, with nationalism, mm. can, can I can I ask you about? Uh, we hear a lot on social media. We hear about cow vigilantes. Um, who are these cow vigilantes? Can you just explain 
uh, because it sounds like a very strange idea. Just explain what's what's going on there. I've written about uh, about this term cow vigilante or cow vigilantism elsewhere. Mm. I think the term itself is problematic. Right. Now, why? Because the idea of cow vigilante is, I mean, the word vigilance mm. is a positive th- term mm. that we have to keep a vigil on something. Mm. Right. So the idea here is that these are people who are engaged in a good cause, yes. namely that they are maintaining a vigil mm. against those who are either, the term which is used in the Indian media, those who are smuggling cows. Mm. So it is not about every animal. Yes. Particularly cow. Yes. Right? Yeah. I think for me, the term cow vigilante is problematic because what you have here, these are criminals. Right. Because once you take law into your own hand, and if a poor Muslim is exporting uh, animals, including cow, mm. and you surround him, you start beating him, and in many cases they have been killed. Mm. So the word cow vigilante here is not appropriate. Mm. It is, from a legal perspective, mm. they should be described as criminals, mm. at least. Yeah. Um, there are some people, and I have also used this term, that yeah. Can we also talk about uh, cow terrorist? <laughs> because by killing uh, these Muslims yes. in the name of uh, cow vigilantism, yes. what is the purpose? The purpose is to strike a terror yeah. in the hearts and minds of, of Muslims. Yes. So cow vigilante is, uh, of course, um, and this will uh, take us to... Uh, to a little bit of history. Mm. Now, the Indian constitution uh, is understood in the West mm. as secular. Mm. But here we must make a distinction uh, that the word secular was inserted in, in the constitution only in mid-70s. Right. So from 47, when India got independence, yeah. until 76 or 77, you yeah. don't have the word secular. Mm. It was inserted. But if you take uh, the idea of India as a secular state. Yes. So constitution has different uh, parts. In the part which is called directive principles of the state policy, that constitution, in that part, it says that the state will um, try to mm. ban beef. Okay? Mm. So it has not been uh, implemented. Yes. At a federal level. Yes. But different states have implemented it. Really? Now, after the rise of Modi, yes. this has become a hot issue. And it is not simply enforced by the law enforcing agencies, mm. but also these cow vigilantes, right. okay, who are civil society, uh, technically speaking. Yes. So these are young people who are affiliated to uh, either directly or indirectly yeah. to the Hindutva organizations. Yes. And and indirectly, they also have protection from the uh, police and from the civil administration. So can, can I ask about this? What is the relationship between the state, the government, these civil society actors like the RSS, uh, the police and the perpetrators, the mobs uh, who conduct these public lynchings? This is really a great question. Uh, 
because we cannot understand um, the health of of a democracy which really believes in justice without uh, this question about the interrelationship uh, between the state and society mm. and also between the different organs of the state. Mm. Now, as we know, uh, liberal democracy is based on the idea of differentiation of different realms, mm. okay, judiciary, executive, and, and legislative. Mm. Now, people who have written about fascism, uh, there, there are many explanations of fascism, mm. but one key explanation of fascism which bears on our discussion is that what happens under the fascist order yes. is that different aspects of the society and different institution of the state, they fuse. There is a almost uh, complete identification mm. and the, the space between the state and society and different institution of the civil society, mm. that completely disappears. It fuses together. Yeah. So what the politician says mm. and what the civil society says mm. What uh, the media says, they become almost one identity, one um, one unified voice. Right, and that is dangerous because uh, the defenses, uh, the dissenting voices, they are simply eliminated. Mm. And in the case of India, you see this. If you want to use this word called uh, fusion mm. of different organs. Uh, of the state as well as the society. Mm. Now, the first example of this fusion, and let's keep this idea of uh, how fascism works in practice. Mm. It fuses yes. uh, these separate realms into one. Yeah. So you see, um, the RSS and BJP, they have been uh, working hard uh, to demolish the Babri Masjid, which mm. was uh, eventually uh, demolished in 1992. Mm. Now, if you take RSS and BJP as political parties... RSS being, by the way, uh, just a quick explanation. So RSS is an organization which the full name is Rashtriya Swam Sevak Sangh. In mm -hmm. English, if you translate it, it would be National Volunteer Association. Right. So the name itself is quite uh, innocent. Yes. But as we'll uh, explain it later, Please, yeah. uh, uh, it has got a quite violent ideology as well as practice. And the BJP is the government in power, the political party of the ruling party. That is correct. Yes. So, so they have been um, campaigning for for uh, building of the Ram Temple, mm. which also means uh, demolishing the Babri Masjid. Yes. So, if you take BJP and RSS as uh, as actor in civil society, mm. because this is how political parties are, mm. right? Uh, taken as as uh, uh, civil society uh, actors. Yes. Now, what they have been saying for decades, mm. the Supreme Court, in its judgment, it said the same thing. Mm. And then media says the same thing. So, this fusion between what political party says, mm. what the media says, and what the Supreme Court judgment says, mm. this is almost identical. Right. And that is where you see this fusion between the state and the society. Really. And that is one way 
to to understand uh, uh, fascism. Likewise, uh, in our contemporary world, media is very important in order to shape our public opinion and so on. Mm. Now, there are many people who say that, well, India is a vibrant, vibrant democracy. We have so many media houses. We have mm. media pluralism and so on. Mm. So on the face of it, it looks very attractive. Mm. But I'm not interested so much as a political anthropologist uh, or, or a social philosopher in the diversity in terms of number. The point is that you may have 15 media houses or 20 media houses. Mm. The, the key question is, how do all these different media yeah. look at the issue? How do they uh, deal with the Muslim question? How do they um, approach uh, the right-wing Hindu extremism? Mm. So, with some minor differences, mm. you will see that all of them, they speak one language. Right. And that language is of an ethnic Hindu nationalism in which Muslims are the prime enemy. Right. And this is routinely uh, telecast, um, printed. Now, of course, I, I, I should say that they don't do it identically. So there are differences. Yeah. And these are some of the names you, um, audience in India would probably uh, clearly identify uh, those names. So, for example, you have people like Arnab Goswami mm. or Anjana Om Kashyap. So, these are the aggressive uh, proponents in the media. These are anchors, news anchors, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. So, they speak loud, aggressively. And then there are others like uh, Rajdeep Sardesai or even Siddharth Vardarajan. Uh, they may not be speaking aggressively. Mm. Uh, they, they may be even um, uh, smiling. But their thought in the ultimate analysis is yeah. Islamophobic. And in my view, I think this smile, yes. uh, which often is uh, more fake than genuine, mm. uh, this smile is as dangerous as the aggression that you find in Arnab Goswami or Anjana Om, Om Kasha. So the latter two would belong to what we would broadly call the liberal press. And the first two probably were more nationalist press. And your point is, it doesn't really matter because these are just different forms of a very rapid Islamophobia. That is correct, with with some some uh, qualifications. Qualifications, yeah. Yes. So these uh, Siddharth and and uh, Rajdeep Sardesai they are taken as liberal, also yeah. secular. Yeah. Uh, but in the ultimate analysis, if you see it, yeah, uh, the idea of India that it is a Hindu nation, mm. okay? So even when they speak sometimes in a very patronizing way about Muslims, yes. they keep the idea of India as a nation of Hindus, yes. and then they try to find some space for Muslims, yeah. but not in the ways in which Muslims themselves would like to find their place in India, right. but the ways in which they think that the Muslims should think, act, and behave. Mm. And that is where the problem lies. Right. Because I think, uh, for me, Muslims are not an a statistical entity. Mm. Muslims are a cultural entity. Muslims are a thinking entity. Yes. So you have uh, even uh, people like uh, Nobel laureate Amart Sen, mm. who proudly say that we have the largest Muslims uh, in, in a largest number of Muslims in India. Yeah. 
Now, the point is that that it is an statistical or numerical claim. Mm. But the point is, does Ahmad Sen also think of Muslims mm. in not simply statistical terms? Yeah. Because Muslims also have a tradition. They have uh, their ways of thinking. Yes. They have a philosophy. They have a literature. Are you taking those traditions and thoughts into account? Or you want Muslims yeah. to act and think based on the parameters of Hindu philosophy which you have instituted in the name of nationalism. Right. And that I think is a very critical point. Yeah. Now that's, I think that's, that's really interesting. And um, uh, I saw recently, and it, it became an issue on social media, uh, uh, there was a circulation of a video showing two Christian women in Manipur who were stripped and paraded through the street and then ultimately abused and raped. Can you shed light on the context behind this video? And it is Hindu nationalism as antagonistic towards other minority groups as it is Muslims, as they are Muslims? Yeah, so I, I personally um, did not watch that video, but I, I read about it because in any case, later on, this was uh, removed from the social media. Yeah. It was so horrific. Yeah. Um, now, clearly it is unacceptable and it is shameful. Uh, and a practice like that in a democracy is simply uh, simply uh, in a genuine democracy, it should not occur in the first place. Yeah. But now, back to uh, this video. Mm. So see, this incident happened in, uh, in a, a state which is called Manipur. Mm. And... Uh, the map that I showed to you, it yeah. is in the northeastern part of India. Right. And it is a small estate. Hmm. Yeah, so right in the north there. Uh, yeah. No, so, so northeast. Yeah. So, so if you bring your finger down. Yeah. Manipur is here. Yeah. Yes. The, the one in green. Right. So it is a small estate. Now, to understand uh, the political context of that violence, hmm. um, uh, for... For your um, viewers, mm. uh, of course, the it is a very complex situation in terms of ethnicity, language, history, uh, and political formation. Yes. But for the purpose of uh, this conversation, so there are two main communities. Right. Okay. <clears throat> the majority Hindu Methi community. Mm. In Manipur. Yes. In Manipur. Yeah. And then you have uh, Kukis, mm. who are predominantly Christians. Right. Okay, now Methis are in majority both numerically but also in terms of power mm -hmm. because minority, after all, is not simply a numerical thing. Minority is a relationship of power. Right. Uh, you also have um, eight or nine percent of Muslims, uh, but they don't matter. Okay, so what happened is that this. Uh, there has been uh, conflict and cl uh, clashes between the Hindu, uh, largely Hindu Mathi community yeah. and uh, the Kukis mm. or Christians. Yeah. But this would not have been possible, the, the context of the video, mm. uh, without this political development. Now, what is this political development? Yes. It is this. Until 2012, so BJP had no elected member mm. in the local legislative assembly. Okay? 
its share of vote was only 2.1%. Yeah. Now, you have election. So in 2014, Modi comes to power at federal level or the central level. Um, there is election in 2017, and you see a sudden rise in BJP. So their share of vote increases from 2.1% to 36.3%. Wow. Yeah. Okay? And then they're able to form the first government. Now, the chief minister of that estate is from the Hindu majority community. Mm. So now emboldened by the national scene, okay, now BJP wants to implement its ethnic Hindu nationalist idea mm. all over India, including in mm. Manipur. Mm. And where these cookies uh, who are uh, Christians, you know, uh, there are also, by the way, issues of land ownership because the, the, the Manipur, it comprises of uh, the hill areas and the valley. Right. So, so the Christian cookies, they are mostly in the, uh, in the hills. And Hindus are mostly in the, in the valley. Right. Now, even though their number is quite significant, but only 20, so the state uh, legislative assembly, it has 60 members. Mm. But maximum, you can have only 20 from the Kuki community. So in any case, the Hindus will have uh, the political majority. So they are the Kukis, they are also, um, in a way, contesting that political marginalization. Mm. So, but we, we cannot understand what happened in this horrific uh, video is, uh, we cannot understand it unless we relate it to the national uh, situation, right. which is the emboldening of Hindu <clears throat> fascism mm. and its grand plan to uh, implement the Hindu ideology in every state. Mm. And Manipur is simply um, another, so some people have described it that, well, the first laboratory of Hindu fascism was Gujarat right. in 2002. Yes. When anti-Muslim pogrom happened. Mm. Now, Manipur is second. Really? And in this case, because uh, in this northeastern uh, part of India, yeah. we have also other states which have significant Christian population. Right. Okay. So, so in that sense, it becomes significant. Uh, so okay, no, thank you. That's 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 uh, very, uh, very informative. Uh, so, is it then fair to say that Hindu nationalism has an equally antagonistic view towards all non-Hindu uh, religious groups? Yes, um, but but they also have a hierarchy of enemy. So, is Islam at the top of that hierarchy? Yes, Muslims, and and we we can probably get to that idea when we go go to the ideology of B, B, BJP yeah. and RSS. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so of course um, this ideology emerged when uh, Britain was uh, still ruling India. Mm. So at that time they were not as uh, uh, open against Christians. Mm. I mean they were, mm. uh, but in this uh, ideology uh, because Muslims also. Um, so religiously speaking, after Hindus, mm. uh, Muslims are the second largest uh, um, religious community. So it's around um, uh, 200 million. I think that's the figure I gave at the beginning. Is that an accurate? Uh, that is correct. Assumption? So yeah. we had um, census in 2011. Ah. So it is decennial census. So there yes. will be another one. Um, uh, it should be probably out uh, uh, soon. Ah. Uh, 
so in that census, it was uh, 14.5% were Muslims. Yes. Okay. Um, and as you know, um, the total population of India is already over 1 billion, billion yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but of course, uh, we have to also take this um, demographic data mm. uh, with a pinch of salt because uh, demography has always been historically uh, enmeshed mm. uh, in politics. Uh, how you count which um, state has been uh, counted properly or not, and so on and so forth. Right. But uh, but clearly, this is a vast number of uh, of Indians who are who are who are Muslims. Yes. So, for the idea of an ethnic Hindu state to be fully workable, mm. Muslims are taken by the Hindu uh, extremist as the greatest impediment. Because it is based on the idea that it is a democracy. Yes. So, of course, uh, there are Christians, but their number is very less. Mm. So, in electoral term, uh, they may not matter. Okay? But yes. Muslims would matter. Uh, but also, the fact that uh, Muslims have been, uh, uh, the presence of Muslims in India has been long. It has had a thriving culture. Actually, um, whether it is in terms of language or um, civilizational ethos, mm. Islam has played a key role. Yeah. Uh, so it is for this reason that Muslims become uh, the prime enemy of, uh, of Hindu nationalisms. So it's a good time then to talk about Hindu nationalism. Now, you sent me a very persuasive piece, a very great, a great piece on uh, that you you wrote an essay on Hindu Orientalism, and I think your basic argument is that um, this type of nationalism pervades uh, Indian society. It's not just restricted to the BJP, but I suppose it's also the case that uh, the BJP government has uh, used Hindu nationalism in a, as a tool. Uh, to marginalize Muslims, but also as a tool for electoral success. So we hear a lot about the BJP's ideology, Hindutva, and you've mentioned Hindutva on a number of occasions today. So how does Hindutva differ to the religion of Hinduism? Yeah, so this is again, uh, this is a very good question. And uh, it actually comes to, um, it, it touches the heart of um, uh, discussion. Uh, about contemporary politics. So broadly speaking, uh, there are two positions. One is, one position maintains that actually uh, Hindutva and Hinduism, mm. to use uh, a peculiar British English phrase, mm. they are as different as cheese and chalk. <laughs> right? So uh, in this position, these are two completely different things. Now, uh, among academics, uh, Ashish Nandi was the one uh, who made this distinction. Now, there is, um, there is uh, a valuation uh, behind this dis distinction, mm -hmm. and, and we should get this. Now, what is that distinction based on? This distinction is based on the idea that Hinduism is a political, it is a spiritual, tolerant repository of ideas, whereas Hindutva is uh, 
पोलिटिकल थिंग सो हिंदुज ए पोलिटिकल एंड हिंदुत्व इज पोलिटिकल दैट इज वन वे टू रीड यस आशीष नंदी वुड से दैट हिंदुज्म इज अ फेथ एंड हिंदुत्व इज एन आइडियोलॉजी अ पोलिटिकल आइडियोलॉजी राइट नाउ आई एम नॉट आई थिंक दिस डिस्टिंगशन इज नॉट इंटायरली करेक्ट वाई एंड लेट मी से वाई so for me i think the question is not not uh, that hindutva is political and hinduism is a political mm-hmm. no in my view both are political right okay so so let's stick to this um, the those who make the distinction between hinduism as faith and hindutva as an ideology yes there are others who say that actually uh, there is no difference mm. although you will find this voice very rare in at least uh, articulated in public yes now many hindus themselves they think that actually hindutva and hinduism is the same mm. and you have somebody called uh, lokesh uh, who was director of indian council for cultural relation mm. so not only he thinks that hindutva is hinduism mm. he went to the extent of saying that modi is god yeah okay so so when you have a description like this mm. then the distinction between hindutva and hinduism is collapsed right okay uh, my own uh, theoretical take is that rather than making this distinction uh, what we can safely say that definitely hindus prior to 19th century mm. okay which is to say that the political and social lives of hindus prior to the rise of nationalism mm. and after the rise of nationalism these are two different things right. so we cannot think of what is happening to india in a pre nationalism age right. so in that sense it is different but not in the sense that oh one is a uh, uh, simply a spiritual um, entity mm. and another is uh, a political entity and therefore ideological professor ahmed i i would like to ask you uh about the rss movement because of course uh you've explained what the bjp is the bjp is the governing party the party of of modi but we also hear a lot about rss uh uh is it a social movement and just tell me a little bit about its background and why it's so controversial um this is also quite a critical question so i think um it is the best word to de- describe it is that it is not a social movement in the sense we understand green movement or even tablighi jamaat movement <laughs> it is a para military uh, militia kind of movement right. and it was established in 1925 yeah now without going into much details i just want to tell the viewers what actually it stands for mm. so although it was established in 1925 but the bible of its ideology uh came in 1923 mm. by uh, vinayak damodar savarkar mm. and he wrote a book uh, which is called hindutva now hindutva basically literally means hinduness mm. so in in that sense uh, it is not a problematic term mm. but the way he defined uh, hindutva uh so his definition 
he he wanted India to be a nation state mm. in the sense of Western European uh, nation state. Mm. Okay, and given the immense uh, 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 diversity in India, mm. he sought to have an ethnically purified uh, vision of India. Right. Now, in that vision, everything is Hindu. Right. So, to to cut it short, his definition of uh, who is an Indian. And he took Indian as a substitute to Hindu. Wow. Okay, so Indian and Hindu qualifies uh, as as equivalent. Yes. So he gave this three uh, core thing that only he or she would be considered as Indian mm. who takes India as her motherland yeah. and also has her. Uh, ancestral land right. and as finally holy land. Mm. But okay. how different is this discourse from say that of the more tolerant discourse we're used to hearing of uh, Mahatma Gandhi for example? Yeah, so so this is uh, I mean there are people who take Gandhi mm. as uh, opposite of RSS. Mm. In my view he's not actually uh, opposite of RSS uh, and there are also a few uh, scholars who have made this point yeah. that actually he's a moderate version of that. Really? Yes. So he believes in Hindu nationalism, a Hindu Rashtra. Yes. Really. So so the, the difference is uh, more in terms of the modes of realizing it mm. rather than the actual uh, content of it. Really. Now, so back to this uh, Savarkar vision, mm. uh, but this was in 19... Um, 23. Now, RSS, the, the second chief of the RSS, uh, M.S. Golwalkar, mm. he wrote a book which is called We or Our Nationhood Defined. Right. And Golwalkar was clearly, he writes in the book that his source of inspiration is uh, Hitler. Mm. So this is a Nazi ideology and I want the viewers to take this into consideration because in that book, he clearly says that non-Hindus, okay, mm -hmm. uh, and in a way it ties to the Savarkar's definition of India because Muslims do not consider India as their Punnabhumi, holy land, mm. okay. So he extends this and he is uh, very clear um, that what non-Hindus should do or what would be the future of non-Hindus. Mm. So he says, and let me uh, quote this, and this is from Golwalkar uh, from this book published in 1939. The non-Hindu people in Hindustan must either adopt the Hindu culture mm. and language, must learn to respect and hold in reverence Hindu religion, must entertain no idea but those of glorification of the Hindu race and culture. In one word, they must cease to be foreigners. Or they may stay in the country wholly subordinated to the Hindu nation, claiming nothing, deserving no privilege, far less preferential treatment, not even citizens' rights. Mm. So this is uh, said in 1939. And I think what we are um, 
facing today. So, so it is not simply a word which has been put on, on paper. Now you see this actually in practice. Right. So the realization of that vision is really through Modi and the BJP government. And um, also take into consideration mm-hmm. that this vision, and, and this is an important question for any uh, person interested in democracy. Mm-hmm. So it is a paramilitary organization. Modi himself is a member of that, uh, of that party, yes. right? Yeah. And by the way, uh, RSS uh, uh, members are not just within BJP. You will find RSS people uh, also in other parties, like in the Congress, in, in Samadwadi party. Right. Uh, and uh, this is not I am saying, but uh, uh, a spokesperson of the RSS. Yeah. Uh, he has said that our people are in every party. Yeah. But more importantly, I don't understand this. That So they have, they have shakhas, which is like training camp. Mm. And every city and town has uh, that drill session. Mm. They wear white shirt and knicker, half pants, which is uh, also inspired by Hitler's um, SSS and, and so on. Mm. So they do this military training in every town and, and, and city. Wow. So it works like a parallel organization. So I don't understand why in a democracy you will have a paramilitary organization because in a democracy, the citizens mm. have to put their faith in uh, in a state and legalized institution like the police, the judiciary, rather than having something which is mm. uh, outside this realm. Mm. But this has existed. Right. And many of these, like the, the violence which has happened in Haryana and Gurgaon, yeah. uh, many of them would be connected to allied organization of the RSS. Really? So not directly uh, member of the RSS, yeah. but then RSS also function by establishing uh, other groups like Vish Hindu Parishad, like Bajrang Dal, yeah. which is a militant wing uh, uh, of the youth, yes. which indulges in a street violence, mm. right? Yeah. So this is how um, this ideology and yeah. practice go together. Now, uh, there's a lot in the Indian press about, of course, about Muslims. One of the key lines of maligning Muslims is the connection with the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire was the last Muslim empire uh, that ruled over India for, for many centuries. And there is an attempt to revise, a revisionist attempt to revise Mughal history in the, in the school textbooks. I remember uh, some discussion about the 17th century ruler Aurangzeb in Indian uh, media and the characterization of Aurangzeb as an Islamic extremist. So just just lay out why the Mughal Empire is so problematic to these Hindutva people. Yeah, so this is a very uh, relevant question. Hmm. And I think the, the root cause of this is um, that the entire demonization of the Mughal rule is actually historically and intellectually indebted to British or Western Orientalism. Right. Now, what I mean by this, I mean this. You see, when the British uh, colonized India, mm-hmm. in order to legitimize their own rule as benign and also beneficial, they started constructing the Mughals as 
malignant and bad force. Mm. Okay? Because this is to tell the Indians that, look, uh, we have colonized you and we are better than the previous rulers. Mm. But what the British also did was to say that, look, we are not the first outsiders to rule India. Mughals were also outsiders. Mm. So you have two things happening here. Externalization of Muslims, okay, mm -hmm. that they are not from India, from outside, mm -hmm. just as the British are. And then the demonization, because without this demonization, you cannot uh, tell Indian people that, look, how good we are to you as Indians, because we have uh, brought progress, we have uh, brought uh, modernization and so on. Now, the, the depiction of Indian history uh, happened along these lines, and two uh, key historians were Eliot and Dowson. So they created even a chronology by saying that Hindu India, Muslim India, and then the British India. Mm. Once you have this linear classification, Hindu India, Muslim India, and British India. Now, of course, when you say Muslim India, when the Mughals rule, uh, but in the Mughal administration, there are also Hindus who have been at key positions. Right? right? Yes. But once you create this kind of thing, uh, then it is like depicting them as three successive linear uh, stages in history and also as uh, opposed to each other. Mm. Now, this was uh, for uh, a variety of reasons. Many Hindus themselves, so this is the British creation, but Hindus found it useful. Yes. So you have somebody like called Raja Ram Mohan Rai, who uh, is considered as... Um, leader of the Indian Renaissance. Mm. And he described his on record to say that we do not, and by we he means probably Hindus, that we do not regard the British as colonizers, but as liberators. Really? Yes. Liberating from Muslim rule. Which, using the Orientalist vocabulary, mm. he described Muslim rule as Mohammedan despotism. Wow. And then described Hindus as original inhabitants. Yeah. So what you see that Raja Ram Mohan Rai, uh, 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 Chris Bailey, uh, the famous British historian, mm. he described Raja Ram Mohan Rai as the first Indian liberal. <laughs> but if uh, that is what uh, liberalism means, <laughs> so you see when you say Hindus as original inhabitants, Mohammedan what? gets identified with despotism mm. as an outsider and British colonialism as a uh, deliverer <laughs> and, and liberator. So you see the seeds of violence is already there. Yeah. Now it is, it is in this framework that Aurangzeb becomes the villain of uh, uh, not simply RSS and BJP. You will find uh, that there are many people outside of RSS and BJP. Mm. Uh, they also have uh, a similar view of Aurangzeb. Right. Now, there are many historians who have written uh, uh, books about Aurangzeb. Yes. Uh, it is not entirely accurate the way he's being uh, demonized. I mean, there was a historian called B.N. Pandey who wrote a book on Aurangzeb. Mm. And it is forgotten that um, Aurangzeb also gave uh, grant, land grant, to many temples as well. Mm. Hindu temples. Yeah. Yes. 
but also mind it, um, keep in mind that this this uh, demonization of Aurangzeb is at radical variance with Muslims' perception of Aurangzeb. Mm. For many Muslims, Aurangzeb is quite uh, closer to the idea of a good leader because the kind of lifestyle he used to lead. Right. Um, he did not take money for his own um, uh, from the exchequer of the government. He used to uh, sue uh, caps. And the money that he used to earn from that, he used to spend on his own food. Wow. But also, he, he has um, this idea of um, justice. So he would have um, an audience with uh, people. Uh, uh, every um, Even a commoner could come uh, and, and have an audience with him about justice and so on. Mm. So, so for Muslims, Aurangzeb is something entirely different. The mm. way... Uh, and 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 the Hindus, um, they they depict him as as complete villain. Now, of course, the, as as a as a historian or academic, the point is not to um, endorse this or that view, mm. but assess what actually uh, historical evidence um, show. Mm. And clearly, historical evidence uh, do not show uh, that he was uh, such a uh, such a bad fellow. Yeah, uh, he also did a lot of things, but he's mobilized in order to enact this politics of enmity, hatred, uh, which is what you see all uh, all over India uh, since 2014, and, especially. And is there any truth in the Hindutva narrative that uh, Muslim India treated uh, Hindus as second-class citizens? So a, a proper uh, response would be from a historian who, who has done uh, enough work. I'm, mm. I'm not a historian, but what I can say, and this is uh, crucial, that, see, um, Al-Baruni, who wrote uh, a book uh, on India, and he was a scholar who went there, lived with Hindus, also learned Sanskrit. Really? Yes. He was an Arab scholar? Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, Abul Kalam Azad, he... Um, he attributes this term to Al-Biruni, saying that, so in the Islamic worldview, of course, you have uh, the notion of Ahl-Kitab. Mm. Jews and Christians, right. Yeah. So uh, through Al-Biruni, Abul Kalam Azad refers to um, this uh, description of Hindus mm. as Shib Ahl-Kitab. Right. So which is, uh, and I'm not an uh, expert of fiqh either, mm. but Shib Shib literally means something which is uh, uh, closer to like a resemblance. Mm. So they are not Ahle Kitab in the sense of Jews and Christian, but Shib is like something closer to it. Mm. So there were also uh, ways to, to deal with uh, religious uh, differences. Yeah. Uh, and my point is uh, that uh, there were... Uh, I mean, in Mughal bureaucracy, uh, you have many Hindus who were at, at uh, key position. Mm. Uh, there were finance ministers uh, who were Hindus. Mm. Uh, this goes, uh, and also defense minister, especially in the reign of Akbar. Mm. Uh, now, the point is uh, that we should also keep in mind 
that we cannot uh, judge uh, the political history of that era from the standard of today. Right. Uh, because the idea of equality that we have today, um, that did not exist at that time. Mm. But I would go one step further and say that, okay, for theoretical reason, we accept that there has been discrimination. But by the way, this discrimination, I mean, you also have uh, poor Muslims, uh, weavers, mm. right? Uh, but Mughals generally, they did not interfere in the in the religious life of, of Hindus. Right. Okay? But the point is, for the sake of argument, even if we accept that there has been some, uh, some uh, ill treatment, for the sake of argument, mm. then the point is, the way you mobilize it now, okay, mm. what is the goal of that mobilization? Of course, you, you are using or you, are, you use that invented uh, idea to impact and make the life of Muslims mm. uh, difficult and impossible. Yeah. Right? Can, can I ask you about, now that's a really good Good, uh, good understanding. Can I ask you then about uh, liberal India? We've got uh, Rahul Gandhi, who is, of course, the leader of the opposition Congress party. You've got Shashi Tharoor, who, again, is quite popular in the West, and, and he's written some books, which one can interpret to be a little bit more uh, inclusive, I suppose, of, uh, of Muslims. His book on Mughal India uh, did merit Morgul India for uh, its substantial work on on improving uh, and creating the world's largest economy of its time. So you've got figures like this, and some Muslims may uh, may come to the conclusion that we need to support uh, these liberal guys, these these uh, Congress uh, politicians, because they would deliver us from this fascism that has uh, uh, undertaken, that has that is, uh, taken over India. I and mean, is that narrative a little bit too simplistic? Yeah, so you see here, um, in such a formulation, um, the assumption is uh, that party politics is the key mm. to understand what is happening in India. And I am interested, uh, I'm interested in party politics as well, but there is something which goes beyond party politics. Mm. So it is the shared ideology of India as a Hindu nation, mm. which informs BJP, RSS as much as it does. Mm. Uh, uh, it does impact and influence. Mm. Uh, even communist, I would say, uh, uh, and, and Congress. Right. Because uh, the, the existing communist party, by the way, uh, historically, as you know, communism is uh, about international movement. Mm. But the Indian communists, they never, they operate within the Indian national framework. Okay. And they also, in many ways, reproduce that idea of India as a Hindu nation, not in the same way as, as BJP and, and, and uh, Congress does. Right. Now, back to Rahul Gandhi and Shashi Tharoor. So, I would say that if we do not see Indian politics in, term, in terms of party politics, but something which is supra-party, the idea of India, uh, what has been in, in, in what has been India, and what India wants to be, so that 
idea of an ethnic uh, Hindu nation, it cuts across the political parties. Mm. Now, Rahul Gandhi, I mean, Congress itself, after the Babri Masjid was demolished, now, the general narrative is that, well, the BJP and the RSS and VHP, they have been responsible for the demolition of the Babri Masjid. Yeah. After the Babri Masjid was demolished and the Supreme Court judgment came, validating that demolition in some ways, mm. you have many prominent Congress uh, leaders in UP, and this included the chief of uh, the UP Congress, saying that, no, no, actually, we also played a key role in the demolition of <laughs> the Babri Masjid. Mm. Right? Uh, uh, Rahul Gandhi himself has been uh, adopting a soft Hindutva. Yeah. Now, uh, about Shashi Tharoor, I think uh, his take on um, British colonialism, his critical take on Churchill, mm. uh, I'm quite a fan of it. Mm. And it is good that he, he brought uh, such things uh, to the public. Yes. But when it comes to Islamic issues, uh, Shashi Tharoor is no different. I mean, uh, probably the difference is that unlike the BJP and RSS and Arnab Goswami, who uses an aggressive language, uh, Shashi Tharoor has got a decent vocabulary <laughs> and he also uh, speaks with some smile. But the content of that Islamophobia uh, is is there in, in a different way. But, but let me um, say this, that if we take... Uh, Hindu politics, uh, beyond party politics, beyond Congress versus BJP. Yes. Here, so the commonality that I have uh, highlighted uh, across political parties, yes. this is, you will see that even Gandhi has that idea. Okay? Mahatma Gandhi or Rahul Gandhi? No, Mahatma Gandhi. Right. Uh, well, Mahatma is the title, but uh, the name is Mohandas Kramchand Gandhi. Mm. Uh, now, as you know, the Dalit uh, leader, Ambedkar, he used to say that I, I refuse to call him Mahatma mm. because uh, the, the term uh, literally means the great soul mm. or probably the greatest soul, Mahatma. Mm. So Gandhi, and probably this is something for the viewers to, to take into consideration. Now, Gandhi is considered as uh, someone who has stood for an inclusive India. Mm. He was for Hindu-Muslim uh, unity and so on mm. and so forth. Yeah. Um, and above all, his icon of non-violence. Mm. So you have people like Barack Obama yeah. uh, praising him. Yes. But I always wondered uh, that, well, uh, is Barack Obama uh, really uh, aware of Gandhi's thought? Mm. And I want to say here is that actually how Gandhi's... Um, elements of Gandhi's thought is uh, so violent, uh, especially when it comes to Muslim issues. Evidence that, I mean, you know, how, how do we know that, that he had these very um, uh, violent views towards Muslims? Yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just explain that, but I would say that actually the contemporary forms of lynching of Muslims, mm. it is, many people think that this is a departure from Gandhian values yes. or Gandhian ideology. Yeah. I will just explain to you yeah. that actually it is a homage to Gandhi. Right. And, and it is actually derived from uh, teachings of Gandhi. Wow. Now how? So see, 
Gandhi was killed uh, on 31st of January. Mm. 2nd of January, he holds a prayer meeting. Okay. Mm. Now, a Hindu has written a letter to him. So, we are talking about the first week of, uh, uh, first week of January 1948. Mm. India got independence in August uh, 1947. Okay. So, it is just within a uh, few months. So a Hindu asked him that if there was a war between India and Pakistan, and that Hindu assumes that Muslims of India will not be loyal to the Indian Union or the Indian state, but rather side with Pakistan. Mm. So that Hindu is asking Gandhi that should not Muslims be expelled before uh, that war happens because they will not be loyal to the Indian mm. state. So in that prayer meeting, this letter is written in um, to Gandhi in English, but he he replies in Hindi. So he is addressing this question, and let me um, quote it. So this is Gandhi's reply. Please, yeah. Do I imagine that crores of Muslims in India will be loyal to India and fight against Pakistan? We must not assume anyone to be bad till he has been proven to be bad if later they meaning muslims betray you you can shoot them you may shoot one or two or a certain number mm -hmm. everyone will not be disloyal wow. we must be brave and trust the muslims if later they violate the trust you can cut off their heads this is in in collected works of Mahatma Gandhi, volume nineteen, volume ninety-eight, page number one hundred and sixty and sixty-one. Wow! Now imagine um, you have collected volumes of ninety-eight. Mm. There are more volumes. Mm. Uh, I'm not a, a scholar of hadith, but I am. How many volumes of hadith are there? So everything that Gandhi has said, it is collected. Mm. It, it it is gone into uh, over 100 volumes. Yes. Now, what you see, if you read this uh, quote closely, so there are two things. If Muslims betray, you can cut off their heads. It doesn't occur to Gandhi that Hindus can also be disloyal. There's nothing in blood or, or, or religion because you are talking about nation-state. So he takes the Hindu questioner's assumption that only Muslims would be disloyal. Mm. And as we know from history, there have been many Hindus who have worked uh, uh, against the national interest of India. Yes. Right? So it doesn't occur to him that Hindus could also be loyal. He takes the assumption that Muslims would be disloyal. But then, if they are loyal and you want... So the proper legal mechanism would be that you put those disloyal Muslims in a court, on trial. Mm. And if the court makes this uh, judgment that they have betrayed India, then you can deliver the punishment, whether it is in terms of execution or uh, jail. In this answer, Gandhi is telling his audience and addressing the questioner that you can shoot them. Mm. Now, what is lynching? Lynching, technically, is that rather than the official of the state, it is the non-state actors, civil society actors, who take law into their own hands and kill 
a people mm. rather than a court judgment which tells that okay this person should be executed right so in this court gandhi is indirectly uh asking the citizens uh to take law into their own, own lands and that way mm. what you see today in terms of lynching yes because it is an illegal act yes. right yeah so in my view it is not a departure from gandhian uh thought it's the logic of it yeah it is extension yeah yeah can i can i ask you about the international uh response to uh, uh modi's uh india to this fascism now uh i talk about how we live in an age of impunity uh why has there been near silence on the backsliding of democracy in india i mean joe biden uh he speaks against human rights abuses around the world yet when it comes to india ni- neither does he speak uh against india nor does he uh in fact he he in a way sanctions he 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 permits this uh this um uh these these acts of violence by um uh, by courting india um India is a member of his uh, de- uh, his summit for democracies where he brings the world's democracies together and 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 of course he's trying to uh, develop a consensus against the autocracies in the world Pakistan is excluded from that even though they have gen- uh, elections because Pakistan is seen to be an imperfect democracy or non-democracy whereas India is seen to be uh, other than that Modi was on a visit to the united states not so long long ago uh what's going on here why is the international community silent about what seems to be uh the road to some form of genocide in, in india this is a sort of um difficult question to answer mm. but let me say um this that this coalition of democracies yes uh, america india uh, britain france and so on and so forth mm. now when these powers speak of uh, democratic values now india projects itself as the largest democracy america is the oldest democracy mm. but if you see uh, the histories of these democracies uh, they have not uh, always been uh, for democracy right now uh, part of the history of democracy and i alluded uh, to this briefly earlier mm. uh, with the example of roosevelt and what happened to the aboriginals in australia yes but these democracies have also been engaged in what i call de-democratization mm. which means how uh, it has been engaged in toppling uh, elected governments uh, from chile uh, in 1971 or 72 alende was elected leader there was a coup against uh, aliand yeah. uh, in 1953 mosaddegh uh, elected uh, government was uh, overthrown yeah. so so the point here is um, that these democracies or the history of democracy after world war 2 is almost also enmeshed uh, simultaneously in de-democratizing uh, polities Uh, this has happened uh, in muslim countries as well uh, you could think of uh, already 1953 musaddiq but you know mursi's government also mm. not in the same way as as um, 
as uh, Mossadegh mm. in a slightly complex way. Yeah. It's a soft coup, yeah. 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 And, uh, and this happened, by the way, in, uh, in early 70s in Bahrain. Yeah. Okay. So you have many examples of these um, de-democratizations. So when these democracies uh, come together and speak in terms of values of democracy, uh, sometimes I'm reminded, and maybe I think uh, probably I will have to switch now from English into Urdu. Mm. So there's this uh, poet, uh, Rahat Indori. Um, he died during the COVID. Mm. So he had this uh, very pertinent uh, couplet, and which, so let me um, say this. He said, Jhooton ne सच बोलो सरकारी ऐलान हुआ है सच बोलो घर के अंदर झूठों की एक मंडी है दरवाजे पे लिखा हुआ है सच बोलो सो सच काइंड ऑफ कन्वर्सेशन इट आई एम नॉट सेइंग दैट दिस इज द ओनली थिंग बट इन दिस पर्टिकुलर कॉन्टेक्स्ट इट आल्सो इट रेफर्स टू लाइक यू नो अ सेट ऑफ लायर्स टेलिंग अनदर सेट ऑफ लायर्स दैट लेट्स स्पीक ट्रूथ ओके now the reason why the west um, courts modi now you mentioned quiet and so on and so forth so of course it is to counter china and so on there is also an argument that look india is the largest uh, market so the west wants to do business right. and there are people who have said that no from the western world you will not hear anything uh, about violation of democracy or human rights mm. because it is uh, party uh uh to this alliance to counter china yes. but then if that is the case and if it is simply uh, raw or brute uh, uh uh politicking then the question is what happens to the idea of uh, norms yes. what happens to values human rights human rights yeah and that i think uh, and this may not be a practical uh, response to your question but yeah. i think at the theoretical level my sense is that look um the world order or the world disorder that we have after world war 2 mm. in the form of the united nations so it is a world of nation state now the chief working uh, axiom of this world order is ruthless pursuit of national interest mm. right every nation state is engaged in pursuing its own national interest yes. and then of course you have coalition and, and alliances now this whole idea of national interest um, the way modern politics works mm. uh, this national interest is based on the idea of uh, enmity so karl schmidt who was uh, uh, sympathetic to uh, fascism so he takes politics as making um, setting mm. friends yes uh, apart from enemy and this is this enemy friend dualism it is actually the core of uh, post world war uh, political order or disorder mm. and then and it is uh, it anchors uh, in the name of national interest interesting yeah once you have this then the idea of violation of human rights uh, of dignity of women like for example um, this horrific video of women uh, raped and paraded in in manipur mm. 
So all these things will be subordinated yeah. to that brutal logic of national interest. Now, sometimes I also think that like, you know, this genocidal violence which has happened against Rohingyas, mm. right? If it had happened to uh, a section of people in, um, in Europe, would the Western world uh, have responded differently, right? Mm. But I think, um, and this is probably not uh, an optimistic uh, note uh, to make, but I think there is a hierarchy of uh, human lives. So certain forms of life of certain humans have been given more respect and attention than the life of certain other uh, social groups. Mm. And unless we do away with that, that hierarchy mm. and really come to a genuine egalitarianism where humans are not ranked or graded based on uh, now either racism, nationalism, now there is also logic of civilizationalism. Mm. So both India and China, they might be they are actually uh, enemies in some ways, mm. but both use this language of civilization nationalism. Yeah. China has been a great civilization since time immemorial, yeah. and India makes the same argument, right? So, so we have to have really uh, a radically new understanding uh, of, of humans where this gradation and hierarchy is done away with. And once we get to that stage only, then I think mm. we'll be in a position to, to talk about suffering mm. uh, of all and really create uh, a beautiful world. Because what we are confronted with today is uh, all awful. And this awful, by the way, is legitimized mm. by lawful. So law, because the moment you say that law and order has to be maintained, mm. So this is lawful, but lawful is not necessarily and always beautiful. There are many things in the world which has been awful, but it has been lawful in the sense that apartheid in South Africa, it was awful, but it was lawful. Mm. It was legitimized by law. Yeah. We as humans, I think we have to aspire more towards not simply lawful, but a lawful that is also beautiful. Mm. It is uh, for humanity. Uh, it is for not simply for uh, humans in in in, but also uh, it is sensitive to 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 the larger idea of universe in which uh, rivers, animals, insects, and butterflies, uh, and cats, they all have their rightful and dignified place. Can I ask you one last question? It's it's been a fascinating discussion, and I've, I've really uh, valued your responses to my questions. Um, there is a raw feeling amongst Indian Muslims, and, and I sense it also when I speak to Pakistani Muslims, that uh, we have, what, 200 million Muslims in India today. Uh, we have, the that's the third largest population of Muslims in, in the world, in fact. Uh, but in 1947, when India and Pakistan um, separated, 
both Muslims decided to remain in India. Um, was it a mistake to stay in India? And should those Muslims, your parents, your four, your grandparents possibly, should they have moved to Pakistan? This uh, question in, in its axiom, uh, a little bit problematic because th there's nothing called uh, Muslims decided or chose to remain uh, why I'm saying this? Uh, see, <clears throat> th there is whole uh, library uh, written on on partition and so on. Uh, I think from the Pakistani side also, uh, there is some quite a bit of damage done uh, to to the historical facts. Look, the best uh, definition of uh, uh, partition that I uphold and I have written about it. So, see, Sardar Vallabhai Patel, who became the uh, Home Minister, and he was from the same estate as your uh, grandparents or forefathers, uh, Gujarati. Yes. Right? So he says that partition was cutting of the diseased limb. Hmm. Now, what does it mean? So here is the idea that from 19th century onwards, and I, I made this reference to to, to um, the key leader of Indian uh, Renaissance, Raja Ram Mohan Rai. Mm. So from that time onwards, you have the idea of India as a Hindu and pure nation. Okay? Mm. Now, Muslims were, but of course from Raja Ram Mohan Rai until uh, Patel, there is a long time. So, so it is not like it happened just in one go, you know? Slowly, so once you have that idea of a purified ethnic Hindu nation, Muslims were seen simply as detrimental. Mm -hmm. So it is like a healthy body, nation as a healthy Hindu body, mm -hmm. and Muslims were taken mm -hmm. as a diseased part of that body. Right. So it needs to be cut off. Now, what partition is that, of course, for Hindus, um, and this is uh, Vajpayee, by the way, who was prime minister and who died, and he is considered a liberal uh, RSS member. Mm. He is on record to say that partition was a good thing. Mm. So why it is a good thing? Because the Muslim majority areas, which now constitute today, after 97, Bangladesh mm. and Pakistan, so these Muslim areas, they were wanting their own autonomy. Okay? Mm -hmm. And speaking on behalf of Muslims, so once you have territorially separated them and given them a state, separate state, yeah. now Muslims who remain in India, so there was in partition uh, drama, there is nothing called that, oh, you have a choice. Actually, you, you have worked by historians when Muslims were going from India to, um, to Pakistan. So after a few months, uh, this is in Jung, and there is a cartoon, it's, it says that Pakistan is full. Mm. Which, which is to say that now you don't come because our geography is is uh, is definite and we cannot accommodate all Muslims. Mm. So it was, not, it was not in the sense of like, oh, Muslims have been given a choice mm. to go. There's nothing like that. And for Hindu nationalists also, if you have a small uh, population, um, that is not a problem. So this is what Vajpayee said, 
that partition was a good thing we have now a less we have now less muslims and it is easier to manage them right so it is not uh, in terms of uh, it is not in terms of uh, choice but what i want to say here that that pakistan as a as an entity as a name so so please keep in mind that before 1947 there is nothing called pakistan yes right but the enmity against islam exist prior to 1947 mm. so that time the hindu nationalism or mainstream indian nationalism conducts itself against islam mm. against muslims yes now what happens after 1947 the indian politicians or people like uh, even shashi tharoor they will if they do not use the word pakistan uh, sorry islam but when they use the word pakistan and pakistan in indian nationalism is a bad word hmm. so when you say that that guy is a pakistani hmm. that means you are being disloyal right uh, you are not being tolerant you are exclusivist so even for these uh, liberals when they use word pakistan it basically means that something because of certain liberal constraints you cannot say muslims and you cannot give them you cannot abuse them so pakistan becomes the word of abuse right and that is why it is kept alive uh like on a daily basis um 24/7 hmm. uh you 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 cannot read uh a newspaper in india or watch a television hmm. uh without um or or films or or even public conversation with friends without ma- mention of, of pakistan hmm. professor irfan ahmed it's really been a pleasure uh, speaking to you today thank you very much for your time thank you uh, thank you for ho- having me and it was uh, lovely to speak to you please remember to subscribe to our social media and youtube channels and head over to our website thinkinmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.